This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Acts 22, verse 22, and then we're going to run all the way into 23 to verse 11. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with this fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. The tribunes ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting like this. But when he had been stretched out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful to flog a man who is a Roman citizen uncondemned? Then the centurion, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I brought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew, and immediately the tribune also was afraid, for they realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that, he had, that they had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and they brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect and hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And he said this, the dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and suddenly the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, and the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the, into the barracks. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so... You must testify also in Rome. Thank you, Jay. Need help carrying that Bible? It's big. So Lene and I had a chance this week to do some project management. And uh, if you know me, you know I kind of get geeked about things like Gantt charts. So this is a Gantt chart, and uh, not the one we did, but it's something like this. And we have a project we need to get accomplished. And what we do is sit down and say, okay, what are all the steps we need to take? When should they begin? What are the order of the steps? And what are the resources needed to get this project accomplished? 
I used to uh, teach project management. I'm a certified project manager. And these kind of things just kind of, I don't know, they get me excited, right? You guys excited about Gantt charts? Probably the only one. But anyway, we um, talked a lot about resource allocation. And resource allocation is really important when it comes to getting a project done. Uh, and you know this if you've ever done a project, like if you ever finished uh, your bathroom in your home. You know when it's time to do the tile, you need to have the tile there, you need to have the grout there, the tools there, and the tile-laying dude there to lay the tile. All of that has to happen at the right time in order to get that accomplished. Resources are vitally important, and that's especially true if your project is in danger. In dire situations, it's really important to be sure your, your resources are in order. And here is Paul, and he's living in that mission, his project, so to speak, of getting the gospel out to the world, to preach Jesus Christ, to get the church moving and all these things happening, and it's in danger right now. The Jews are upset. They brought him before Rome and all these things are in danger, and it's in this time where he brings some key resources that he has to the table in order to continue the mission. And I want to say to you, you have some resources to bring to the table. Now listen, first of all, it requires that you're passionate about living for this project, this joint endeavor that we are doing together, and that is the proclamation of the gospel to the world. Do you know that this is the most important thing about you? That you know Jesus and that you can help other people know Jesus. The life happens and it's so easy for that to take back seat to the other things that you do. And I want to say, like Paul, we got to be passionate about the mission. And I would encourage you in this big idea that you would say, I will utilize my God-given resources to accomplish the mission. That I'll only utilize my God-given resources to accomplish the mission. Now, as you heard this story and you read through it, you can, you can understand this was an interesting study. And uh, um, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to come with three, I believe, God-given resources that we can see in this text that we can bring to bear as we fulfill the mission of getting the gospel out to Fort Wayne, as you fulfill getting the mission out to your neighbors and maybe even some family members as they come in for Thanksgiving this week, some resources that you have to bear. And let's talk about the first one. Here it is. Write it down. My journey. My journey is a God-given resource that I can use to advance the gospel. So let's take a look at our story here, and let's pick it up. Now, if you remember last week, Paul is uh, being beaten two weeks ago. Uh, Adam covered that and talked about suffering in Christ and all of that. And then last week, we talked about the power of a personal testimony as Paul gives up and he gives his testimony. And it gets to this part about Jesus telling him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And that frustrated the Jewish people. So now they get upset, verse 22, up to this word, the word Gentiles, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, which by the way, was a cultural symbol of their anger and rage. Verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Now, this was not the first time Paul was being beaten. He was beaten a lot in his life. But this time, as you heard in the story, he actually kind of maneuvers 
to get out of this beating. And I think there's a couple of things uh, that are important to note. I think it's important to note that this was a different group of people than before. The people were different. Really, up until this time, it was by far mostly the Jews. There may have been one time when Rome stepped in to be a part of that. But by and large, uh, the, every time Paul was getting this level of persecution, it was because of his testimony about the gospel of the Jewish people. And they were the ones who were beating him. But this time it's different. This is kind of an indirect suffering, and this is the government of Rome. And they're not beating him because of his testimony of Christ. They're going to beat him to try to figure out this mystery as to why the Jews are mad at him. It's really unjust. And so because of all of that, Paul then kind of steps up. The other thing that makes this very, very different than previous ones is how they were going to beat him Uh, Take a look at this. This is uh, what it says in verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Probably they were going to use a flagrum. And a flagrum was a very, very dangerous tool. In fact, um, F.F. Bruce says this about the flagrum. The flagrum was a fearful instrument of torture, consisting of leather tongs weighted with rough pieces of metal or bone, and attached to a stout wooden handle. If a man did not actually die under the scourge, he might well be crippled for life. Paul had been beaten with rods on three occasions, one at least at the hands of Roman lictors, and he had been sentenced five times to the disciplinary lash inflicted by Jewish synagogue authorities. But neither of these penalties had the murderous quality of the flagrum. Now, Paul's not worried about his own life. That's very evident from Acts 20.24. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. For if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, here it is, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. So here's what Paul is saying. I have more ministry to do. I have more testifying to do. I want to keep proclaiming the gospel of God. The mission was at stake. And because the mission was at stake, he needed to move forward. This is all attested to by Jesus, by the way, who at the end of the story shows up and says, Paul, I still have some testifying for you to do in Rome. Paul's very concerned about the mission. And so what he does here is really interesting. And what I love about this whole story is Paul just puts his brain to action in several examples of things in situations where if he thinks about it rightly and makes the right choices, man, the gospel continues to go forward. So what he does here is he pulls out his little trump card that he has in his back pocket, uh, verse 25. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said that the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul was a Roman citizen, and not everybody who was in Rome or in a Roman province can claim Roman citizenship, but Paul could. But it was very, very, very valuable. You see, uh, they wanted you to want to be a Roman citizen. It was one of their ways where they really advanced the empire of Rome. They made it so attractive. And one of the things about it is, by Roman law, no Roman citizen could experience the flagrum. That was only for those who were outside of Rome. And especially if they were uncondemned. And that's why Paul mentions it. 
Here I am, uncondemned. And you're going to beat me with a flagrum, but I'm a Roman citizen. And he just kind of pulls that trump card out, kind of mentions that little fact, and it just sends them in a tether. We see all that goes on here. He goes to the tribune. The tribune comes and says, hey, I paid for mine. How did you get yours? And Paul said, hey, I was born. I was born a Roman citizen. You see, Paul had this truth, this element of his life story. Did Paul choose to be a Roman citizen? No, not at all. It's just part of what happened in his life. And here is Paul leaning back on his story, leaning back on his journey, this really important element, and uses that, why again? To further advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul uses his journey to do that. So how does this apply to you and I today? (laughs) Hopefully, you won't be stretched out to be examined by flogging anytime soon. but you have a journey. Some of it was in your control. Some of it was not. But it's your journey that God watched you through. Now, in fact, let me show you this. This is from Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, where he said this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward them and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. So, so check it here. Where you grew up, God determined. Your parents were chosen by the sovereignty of God. Your childhood was lined out by the hands of a God who's in sovereign control of it all. And when you look back at it, it gets all confusing. It seems all muddled and it's hard to figure out all the time what God was doing. But I'm telling you, you have your journey at the hands of God. See, I was uh, born in Kentucky. I hear several pictures I pulled up from my past. I think, I think that's some Christmas somewhere. And uh, there's several of these outfits that I really wish I could get back again. That butterfly collar corduroy brown thing, man, I'd love to have that again. Probably not going to go shirtless anytime soon, but uh, wouldn't mind having that belly again. Uh, but um, that shirt over here in the 90s, I mean, come on. I know you're envious right now. It's okay. Envy is not good, but uh, deal with that. It's beautiful. You know you, you, know you love it. But uh, uh, so when I think about my own journey, I was born in Kentucky. Uh, when I was very, very young, my mom had a mental breakdown and couldn't care for, she tried to care for us, so I, but my dad divorced her, uh, found another woman right away. Uh, they moved to Washington State, and we tried to, to live with mom, and we were in a trailer in the middle of nowhere. Eventually, she just kind of sent us out to dad, and so uh, my dad raised us with this woman that he was living with and her kids, and it was... Hard. There was some of it that was good, but most of it was really, really rough. And then, as I shared last week, that kind of led to me getting into the rock and roll scene and all that went with it. And even after that, I graduated high school. I was running from the Lord. I mean, and you look back at your life, you're probably the same way I am. It's like a convoluted concoction of my bad choices, other people's bad choices, and 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 here I am through it all. And I look back and like. But it's my journey, given to me by a sovereign God who determined my boundaries and the times that I was living in. And some of it, I think there's some healthy regret as you look back. I wish I could not sin. I wish I could choose different things. Now, 
we're not going to live in guilt and shame, right? We're not going to live there because Jesus died for our sin. And he said, if we confess our sins, he is church faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So yeah, I'm not going to live in that guilt and shame. Jesus died for it. But I can look back and say, I regret that still. So there's some regret that's there. But all of it can be redeemed by Jesus. All of it can be, say that with me if you would please. All of it can be redeemed by Jesus. He is the redeemer. This is what God does. What the enemy meant for evil, God uses for, for good, church. Now, even as I'm saying this, for some of you in the room this morning, this is hard. Because some of the stuff you have walked through has been very painful and it's so hard to look back and say a sovereign God was on his throne during all that time. I keep hearing the same statistic about different things, but I keep hearing one in every four women, one in every four women have had some unwanted sexual advance made against them. One in every four women have lived in an abused situation of some sort. And I want to stand up here as a pastor of a church and tell you straight up, the church has not handled abuse well at all. And maybe you're here this morning, you've experienced some massive pain. And not just the women, some of the, some of the guys have walked through things and, and you're hurting and you look back at life and you're saying, that, I don't get why God allowed that. I don't understand why God allowed that. And I just want to say a few things to you. Number one, please understand that our God is not the author of the evil. He is not the author of the evil. Our God is the one who brings comfort to our suffering. And when he brings us comfort in that suffering, he tells us to rescue the oppressed. He tells us to stand up for those who are weak and helpless, to stand against the oppressor. And, and, and again, we've done a bad job at that, but I want you to also know that he's a God of comfort. And God can take that pain, that difficulty that you've walked through and turn it and use it for comfort. In fact, take a look at this from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we, have, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. I love verse 7 now. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And I don't know why God has allowed the things that he has allowed in your life other than to say, Jesus can redeem it all. Say it with me again. Jesus can redeem it all. And whatever your life journey has been, God can use it. But I think back in my life, like I can sit down with somebody who's experienced a broken home and I can say, I get it. I can sit down with somebody who's been abandoned by a parent and say, you know what? I get that. 
I can sit down with somebody who's been tempted by drug use and say, I get that too. I understand what that's like. God can redeem even all of that for his glory. So my question to you this morning is, what unique elements of your story can you use to reach others for Jesus? And really think about that. But also know, if this is still very hard for you, I want to get someone to talk to you and to let you know that you're loved and to help you see God's love through all the pain. If that's something you need, please let us know. Okay, we're talking through resources to help us advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want you to know your journey is a resource. Uh, Then let's go on to this. This is interesting. My judgment is a resource. My judgment is a resource. Now, I've got to be careful with that, and I want to explain this very carefully in the text. So uh, look at where the story goes now. Take a look at verse number 30 of Acts 22, and we're going to get into 23. Here's Acts 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, it's important to know this. The Romans had the authority to do this. They could tell the high priest, you're going to come in and you're going to have a little trial here. Get the council of elders together. You're all coming in. I don't care if you're in your jammies. You're coming in and you're examining Paul. And they had the authority to do that. And they did that here. So so they're going to examine Paul now. And what we're going to see in this next part of the story is Paul using the word of God and his own mind as a resource to further the gospel. In fact, they use this word judgment for a reason. Look at verse number six, and there's a word here. I mean, yes, it's a great J word, and we know that all good sermons are alliterated, and all God's people said, oh my, oh my, better. Uh, But uh, this word, I didn't pick judgment because of that, though it does fit. I really picked it because of verse number six. And by the way, I can't help it. Alliteration is a curse in my life. I mean, I will alliterate other people's sermons when I hear them. But no, you you could have done an F word there, and this would have been, anyway. Verse number six. Now, when Paul perceived, see the word perceived? The word perceived is the word I'm, I'm leaning on. The word perceived is really interesting in the Greek. It literally means this, to come to an understanding as the result of ability to experience and to learn to come to understanding, to perceive, to comprehend. The Laonida has that as the definition. So its idea is that he, he, he had the intellect to be able to use his experience and his knowledge. Both of those are important. His experience with his knowledge to make some choices here, and he makes some interesting ones that we're going to dive into just a little bit. So first of all, I, I want to say this. Uh, you need to know that um, uh, judgment should be based on God's word primarily. That's the first thing I want to share with you. Judgment should be based on God's word. Duh, you would say. But let me show you in the text how detailed Paul's knowledge of the word of God goes and how he's able to pull out that knowledge as he's facing these things. So here we go, verse number one of 23. And Paul, looking intently at the council, by the way, that'd be fun to watch that, wouldn't it? I wonder how he just... Anyway, but Paul, looking intently at the council, uh, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now that upsets the high priest and he has uh, someone slap him in the mouth for that. 
But, but I want you to know something. Uh, uh, that's an absolutely scriptural claim from Paul. He could stand there and say that he had a good conscience. So if you were on trial this morning, could I say to you, do you have a good conscience? Could you stand and say, my conscience is clear? Did Paul have a good conscience because he didn't fail the law? No. Why did Paul have a good conscience? Because of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, but whatever gain I had, by the way, he's defending or he's uh, talking about his Jewishness here. But he says this, whatever gain I had, all his Jewishness, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now here it is, verse number nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He had a good conscience, not because of his life, but because of what Jesus had done. And he's standing for they're not sinless, but having confessed his sin before God, and therefore his conscience is clear. How's your conscience doing this morning? Well, I really messed up in some sin this week, and I feel really guilty about it. I would say, everyone who feels guilty this morning, raise your hand, but probably shouldn't do that. Then I would say, come forward, and let's talk about 1 John 1, 9. Because, church, again, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can have a clear conscience because you've confessed your sin to Jesus. You've said that was sin. That's what confess means, homologian, to say the same thing as. This was sin when I did it, God, forgive me. And if you've done that, man, it's not, it's not your righteousness you stand in. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here is solid biblical truth that Paul is standing on right now. But it goes beyond that. Take a look at this. Uh, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, that's not very nice, was it? By the way, don't try that insult with somebody in your home. It won't, it won't land the same as it did with the, the Pharisees, I promise. Uh, it hurt the Pharisees a bit. Why? Who else called them whitewashed? Jesus did. He said, you whitewashed tombs. And out of anger, I, I believe righteous anger, he says, um, God is going to strike you. By the way, a little prophetic, because not long from now that there's going to be a revolt and the high priest is going to be found in the aqueducts under the city and killed. Another story. Uh, but here's why he's so upset. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? See, Paul knew Deuteronomy. And Paul knew that in Deuteronomy, it was unlawful to punish someone before they were condemned. And they struck him. They punished him. They hadn't been condemned yet. And he said, dude, that's breaking the law that you're judging me by. But then this happens. It's really interesting. Uh, verse number four, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? 
And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. And he probably didn't. Remember, this was a hastily called together tribunal. This was, you know, probably at some odd hour and the dude's probably not wearing his high priestly robes. And Paul's been gone for a long time. He probably didn't recognize him as the high priest. But once he does, look at what Paul did. He said, I did not know, brothers, he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So Paul kind of backtracks a little bit, apologizes some. Why? Because he had done something against the word of God. You see it? God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word. It was the knowledge of God's word that was fueling all the judgment and the decision-making of Paul in this moment. Paul had saturated his life in the word of God. And his thinking is all about the word of God here. God's word was calling the shots in Paul's life. And it should in all of our lives. That's why Psalm 119 says this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And if Amy Grant came to your mind, raise your hand. Go ahead. Anybody? I got a few of you. Yep, I knew it. Some of the older ones in here. You were loved. Thy word. All right. But the truth is there. By the way, I love this. What, What does a light do and a lamp do? It shows you your next step. It makes sure your next step is going to be safe. And God's word is that lamp to our feet. By the way, Psalm 119 is uh, the longest psalm in the Bible, and it is just replete with passion for the word of God. But here's Psalm 119, 5 and 6, which says this. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Is this the way you live your life, church? Where you are so saturated with the word of God that the judgment calls you make all throughout a day are really being guided by your knowledge of the word of God because you make a bunch of judgment calls. You made some this morning. You put something on your body when you got dressed. How much did God's word dictate what you put on? Hopefully some modesty verses came into play. Hopefully some things like that were there. And and hopefully you knew from 1 Peter not to make your adornment merely the outward, but really to focus more on your heart this morning. As I'm looking out, a lot of you put more attention on your heart than you did your appearance, for sure. (laughs) You drove to church. (laughs) You drove, you drove to church, and uh, um, do you know there's some God's word that would dictate just how fast you drove to church today? This is why Courtney drives on Sunday morning, so that I can get up here and not have to feel guilty when I say that. I can go on and on and on and on. There's so many judgment calls you make on a daily basis, and God's word has something to say about so much of what we decide to do. It really does. So here I am again, once again, telling you, shocker all shockers, we should be reading our Bible every day, getting into the Word every day. Now, how many of you knew that before you came to church? You can raise your hand. How many before you came to church this morning, you knew after reading the Bible every day? All right, good, good. Lottie Dottie, everybody probably knows that, but there's something about knowing and there's something about doing, and there's always a bridge 
that we talk about here between knowing and doing. Because if you just hope that tomorrow you're going to read the Bible, you just kind of hope it's going to happen, maybe I'll feel guilty enough after pastor preaches that I'll just do it tomorrow, it's not going to work that way. You're going to have to be intentional about it, and you're going to have to build the bridge of intentionality. The, the bridge between knowing and doing is intentionality. What that means is you have a plan. And all you have to do to get into a consistent Bible study is answer two questions. Write these questions down. Here's question number one. What am I going to do? Question number one, what am I going to do? What am I going to read? What am I going to study? That's the question you need to answer. The first question. And then the second question is, when am I going to do it? So this week, what am I going to do? And when am I going to do it? Now, I serve an awesome God. Can I get a witness? Here's what I want to share with you. I taught this in the first service, of course, and I mentioned a, a, a company that Courtney and I really like. In Bible studies, we really like. They're called Daily Grace Company, and we like them a lot. They're good. They're, they're gospel-centered. They're gospel-saturated. They'll get you diving deep into the Word of God, yet very applicational, and they're very beautifully done. I preach that, and then Lynn Lehman comes up afterwards. She goes, guess what I brought this morning to hand out to people for free? A stack of... Daily Grace Bible Studies. So here they all are. Here's a one on the book of Romans. By the way, um, I'm excited uh, to say that we are going to be going through Romans and Genesis. And we're going to kind of do Genesis for a season. And then we'll take a break. We'll go to Romans for a season. Then we'll come back to Genesis for a season. And 10 years from now, we'll be done with all that. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. And then, and then Doug said in an elders meeting, you're going to be retiring closely after that, aren't you? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, he's probably right. Uh, but here's, anyway, Romans. So I want to get a head start on Romans. There's that. Here's a, a Between Grief and Glory. This is a study of Lamentations. Here's a study on Ruth. Here's a study in Matthew and all down the way here, Nehemiah. And I'm just going to leave these up here, and we'll see the violence that pursues as you come. And uh, no, but, we'll, but in, find something, find something. That's something you can do to just get into the Word of God on a regular basis. And then when am I going to do it? Find that time to do that. And saturating your mind with God's Word. So listen, uh, our judgment should be based on the Word of God. And, and then hopefully this will evidence itself to you. It also should apply to real life. It also should just simply apply to real life. So judgment should be applied to real life. You can go ahead and make, yeah, there you go. Slide back to the other one, and we're good to go. There we are. Um, all right, I'll, I'll just say this, because then you get this interesting story here. We're not going to dive too deep into it, but Paul, it's, it's not just kind of funny, it's really funny. What Paul does in verse number six, you know, Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees. He cried out in the, in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. So he's clearly identifying with one of the sides. And he said, is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And the Pharisee was like, well, okay, what did he say? Oh, this is about the resurrection. Now it's on. 
And they begin to fight and argue. And as they're fighting and arguing, I'm picturing Paul just kind of shrinking back, saying, yes. And uh, then they come, and it gets really violent. And they take him away because he's a Roman citizen, and he's uncondemned. And if he dies here, the prisoner in charge of him puts his life at risk. And so they take him, and they put him aside. But see what's going on here? Paul is using his mind now and his knowledge of this contention. And by the way, he's not lying at the end of the day, this really is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Albert Barnes says this, all that Paul said, therefore, was strictly true. It was because he advocated this doctrine, the resurrection from the dead, that he was opposed, that there were other causes of opposition to him might be true also, but still, this was the main and prominent cause of the hostility. With great propriety, therefore, he might address the Pharisees and say, Brethren, the doctrine which has distinguished you from the Sadducees is at stake, and the doctrine which has the foundation of all of our hopes, the resurrection from the dead. And he was absolutely right in all of this. But what is that? What is, what is this thing that Paul's doing of taking what he knows of them, what he knows of the word of God, and, and applying it so the gospel's advanced? That's called wisdom. And wisdom is taking what we know of God's word, applying it to real life to make better judgments. Wisdom is taking what we know of God's word, applying that to real life in order to make better judgments. And the word of God would call us time and time again to wisdom. In fact, here's Proverbs chapter four, verse number five. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though, uh, th- though it costs you all that you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. And this is Solomon pleading with his son. Be wise, be wise. Take what you know and put it to life. As your pastor would stand before you and say, church, be wise. Take what you know Put it to life. Think biblically. Say those two words with me, if you would, please. Think biblically. And it does come into play. I uh, have a pretty strict rule that I will not be alone with a woman that's not my wife. Not in a car, not in a room, not in a text. All of that is going to involve Courtney. Why is that? Does the Bible say anywhere? Turn to the passage that says, don't ride alone in a car with a woman. If it's in your Bible, you probably have the message. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Kind of. Uh, No, but it is in the Bible. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. And I'm going to be wise then and give no opportunity. That's another text entirely. Give no opportunity for the flesh. I'm just going to run from all of that. And so it's hard as a staff. I and mean, we got a woman on staff now, and we got to really arrange our schedules to be sure that we hold that very carefully. We won't uh, co-sign loans, even for our kids. And that's come up. You know, it's like we've been able to, we could have done that, and it would have helped them out a lot. Instead, they have to go and work hard, and they have to get their own credit to be able to sign up. But why won't you co-sign a loan for your kids? That seems pretty harsh. Well, the Bible says in Proverbs 22, verse 26, be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. Okay. 
God's Word says it. I'm going to not just read it, but apply it to life. And you know, church, I could go on and on and on. And just to help you see, there is just so much in God's Word. But this is wisdom, putting it to practice. And Paul uses his intellect to create a distraction to further the gospel. Let me ask you a couple questions. When in your life, are, where in your life are you applying sound judgment? Think back through your week. What passages guided the decisions you made this week? I throw this question in from time to time because it's so important to think through. When has God's word stopped you in your tracks? I was going to do this, but oh, wait, the Bible says not to. Resources to press our journey forward. One resource is my, our, our, our uh, gospel witness forward. My journey, my judgment, and then lastly, and most importantly, church, my Jesus. Adam, if you would come, let's go to verse number 11. Verse number 11 says this, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. I want you to, I want you to just think for a moment about times in your life where you were tempted to despair or you felt despair. Have you had them? I mean, think about what Paul's going through right now. He was a Jew of Jews. He loved his people. In Romans, it's going to be revealed that he said, if I could give up my salvation so that the Jews would be saved, I would do it. He loved these people. They were trying to kill him. And this is after a lifetime of this sort of thing. And Jesus meets him and stands by him and says, take courage. For as you have, I love how he encourages Paul, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Hey, you're going to keep preaching my gospel. You're going to keep telling people about me. Take courage. But I love that Jesus shows up. Because if there's anybody that can bring comfort to Paul in this moment, it's Jesus Christ. Who else was rejected by his own? John 1.11 says this, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Who else stood before a council led by the high priest that was a mockery? Jesus experienced that very thing. Who else was beaten unjustly, like Paul so many times? Jesus experienced all of that. And here he shows up to say, I love you, and I'm with you. And church, I need to say to you, if you and I are ever going to make it through the difficult times of life, this resource trumps all others. Jesus is there with us in our trials.
He promised us in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In fact, if you were listening carefully, so many of the verses that were shared in our time this morning and worship were all about the Lord being there. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. And he gets it, church. He gets it deeply. The Bible says this in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with their weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And Courtney and I were just talking about this this week as we were driving. We have so many people in our church right now that are going through hard things. And Courtney and I were driving to meet with a couple to be some encouragement to them. And this is now several times in the last several weeks that we've done this, which I'll say, by the way, I know the only time that you guys get to see Courtney in action is just loving the babies in the nursery. What you don't see is Courtney in action all the time with me going to meetings, meeting with people, praying with women, counseling. We can't stand up here and say, hey, she counseled her and her and her. We can't do that. But I want to tell you, she's with, with me by my side as a support through all those things. But anyway, she said this, and I that was so right. She says, you know, I just, it sounds so simple, but you know what all these people need? They need more Jesus. They don't need more money. They don't need more security. They don't need better relationships with other people as much as they need Jesus. And if you've heard nothing I've, I've said today, I hope you hear this, man. He's with you. Through your journey, he's always been with you. To help you with judgment, he is with you. So what I want to do is just pray over you right now, and then we're going to sing a song, and we're going to just sing and declare from our hearts that we want Jesus over everything. So let's pray together first. God, thank you for your beautiful, beautiful word. Thank you for this example of Paul. Most of all, for Jesus if Christ had not been by my side there's no way I would still be standing in a pulpit today if Christ had not been by my side I loathe to think about where I would be but Jesus you've been there You've assured me of your love. You've assured me of your grace. You have whispered in my ear, you are forgiven. You have shown me from your word that you will never forsake me, even when at times it felt like you might this time. And I just thank you. And Father, regardless of what is to come, I have Jesus, and that's better than anything. Hear this praise from our heart as we attest together as a church that Jesus belongs over everything. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. He's the hope for all mankind 
just in church on Sunday morning, but Lord, over all of our life, Lord, over everything, I want you to know that's, all, that's the commitment of your heart to make him Lord, but it's also a truth we declare. He is Lord over everything you face this week. He is Lord over all of it. He's the sovereign God over it all, and he can be trusted and loved and adored and worshiped. And as you just think about his love and his grace he's poured out in your life, and let's pour out a walk of obedience as we make judgment calls for his glory, and we'll trust him in all these things. So, Father, we do love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Father, for the truths that change us every day, that impact our every day. And let us be students of that and lean into that and do it all for your glory. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Our love redemption.